If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We do have a couple over on the table if you would like to borrow those. And if you have your phone, I like to get it on my phone as well. And so you could go ahead and use that. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. We just finished up chapter 5 and his thought, as I, I want to remind you that when, when God wrote the Bible through the, the penmen like Paul and the others who wrote down the word of God, he didn't just end their thought necessarily with the chapter divisions. Okay, Chapter divisions came later. So just re- think about that when you're reading the scripture that chapter divisions help us again to find out where we're at so we can be on the same page, so we can look at the scripture the same. Otherwise, you have to go through this big, long book to try and find out where exactly we're talking about. And uh, just remember that as we were talking about the end of chapter 5, he was talking about the husband-wife relationship, and he's also talking about the Christ-church relationship. And so as he uses those as illustrations to help us understand uh, how we are to live with our human relationships, it also is a great reminder of how Jesus' relationship with the church, not the building, but the people who make up the church, those who are saved, who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, uh, they are part of the church, part of his body, and his relationship with the church is how the husband-wife relationship is supposed to work as well. And then today, as we get into the beginning of chapter 6, he talks about the parent-child relationship, but then he also talks about the master-servant relationship. And uh, we'll kind of help us understand how we can apply that to our lives, the master-servant relationship today, as we don't really have the uh, concept that they did back then of in-house servants that lived uh, with them uh, like we do, like they did then. We don't have that today as much. And so you can still find it, but it's very rare. So the uh, Bible still applies to us, and the principles that he's talking about still help us to understand uh, what he is trying to say there. And I think we can gather some things that, uh, as the context is, though, specifically the master-servant but as we talked about in Philippians chapter 5, or excuse me, chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, Jesus came to be that servant as well. So we'll get to that in just a minute. But let's pray, ask the Lord to bless this time. We'll read a few verses after that, and then we'll get into our message. Dearly Father, thank you, Lord, once again for this time. Uh, we thank you uh, that all that we have is in Jesus. All that we have as Christians is found in Christ alone. And Father, I pray that you would help us to fully understand uh, what it is that we have. And Lord, as we went through this uh, series so far in the book of Ephesians, finding our true identity, Lord, everything that we have in you, we could find in the first three chapters of Ephesians. We've been bought with a price. We've been chosen. We've been uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Father, I, I, I thank you that the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is something that you have given to us as well. That we have you inside of us, God in us, through the Holy Spirit of God. And we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, as we now do our best to yield to the Spirit so that we can live out our identity in you in our daily lives. Father, I pray that you'd help us today as we uh, talk about these uh, familial of relationships, and Lord, that you would get the honor and the glory through everything uh, that is said and done with the rest of the time we have. We praise all in Jesus' name. Amen. And so just to quickly recap, Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 
it tells us who we are in Jesus. It talks about how uh, he came and he died for us, how he gave his life so that we could have eternal life, that we could actually be children of God through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says that by saying that he came and gave us redemption through his blood, that it's not by the blood of bulls and goats, as the Old Testament law was strictly for them to understand that they were sinners. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that it was our schoolmaster to teach us uh, that we need a Savior, to teach us that we needed uh, somebody uh, to die for our sins because we would be paying for our sins forever uh, because we could not pay for all the sins that we have committed. And not only that, but that we are by nature sinners, that we are by nature enemies of God because of the sin nature that we have that was passed down from Adam when he was the first man and sinned uh, for that first time in the Garden of Eden. And he tells us that is the riches that we have in Jesus are so great. And yet, if we don't remind ourselves what we have in Jesus and who we are in Jesus then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are simply going to be putting on an outward show. And we're not going to be living out our identity in Jesus the way it needs to. Simply put, it would be like when Jesus talked to the Pharisees in the Gospels and he said, you're nothing but whited sepulchers. They look good on the outside because of all their robes and because of all the, uh, the things that they do to make themselves look presentable uh, to the people. And yet inside they are dead because they don't have that relationship with Jesus. They don't have that true relationship with God. And so without understanding who we are in Jesus, simply uh, put that we have a relationship with Jesus and that we can then live our lives out in that relationship and allow the Holy Spirit to work through us through his power that is God's desire for you. God's desire, I was just reading this morning, is not just for us to stay uh, babes in Christ, not to just stay somebody who got uh, born again and that's where we stay. Uh, we had uh, Lucy about three months ago. And yes, she's a cute baby. And anybody who uh, has babies or uh, has nephews and nieces and, and been around babies, they're, they're cute. And yet, there's things about them that I don't want them to stay a baby. <laughs> I want them to grow up. I want them to be able to be productive. And I want them to be able to actually live a life that is going to uh, matter. Yet, if they stay babies, and we have to keep feeding them, and we have to keep changing them, and we have to keep uh, doing all the things that you have to do with a baby, they're not going to grow up. They're not going to be productive. They're not going to be self-sufficient and able to make a difference in this world and in their life. God doesn't want us to stay babes in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want us to stay just newborns in the faith. He wants us to grow. He wants us to take in the, the word of God so that we can understand more about God, but not just to have information about God, but so that we can put it in our lives to live out who God wants us to be. And that is where we get into Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. We talked about it in Ephesians chapter 5, the end. Let's read it so we can kind of get the context here into chapter 6 as well. But chapter 5, verse uh, 24, it says, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, 
just as we mentioned this last week, but just as Christ is the head of the church, and everything that we do here, uh, I'll speak specifically uh, for New Life Baptist Church, but everything that we do here at New Life Baptist Church is in context of Jesus is the head of the church. It's not me, it's not my wife, it's not uh, anybody else, it's not uh, even the government or the city or whoever, it's not any church members, it's Jesus Christ. And so if we do something that goes against what he said, then it's not Jesus who needs to change, but it's us who needs to change what we are practicing or what we believe. He is the head. The church is subject to Christ. Verse 24, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. You know, there needs to be a head who makes the ultimate decision. But as I said last week, uh, I often go to my wife for wisdom and guidance because in many things she is uh, smarter than me and wiser than me. And there's uh, something to be said about having an agreement in a, in a relationship. And yes, uh, the husband here may be the ultimate uh, yes or no, but we understand that God is saying, as he said just prior to this, uh, in the end of, actually it was at the end of chapter 5, it says, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in loving your wife as yourself, you're going to value her. You're going to respect her just as much as she is to respect you. You're going to value her opinion. And so I know oftentimes uh, Christians can get the bad rap of that the husband's in charge and that uh, the wife doesn't matter and that she's insignificant. And that is far from what the biblical view of God's uh, marriage relationship is. That is far from it. He gives just as much value to the wife as he does the husband. They just have different roles in the grand scheme of how God's uh, uh, relationship with the husband and wife and the family, just different roles. She is just as significant as I am in God's eyes. My kids are just as significant in God's eyes as I am. Every single person has just as much value in God's eyes as the next person. We all have simply different roles. Uh, in the job I, I work on as, as well throughout the week, uh, there's a manager, and then there's an assistant store manager, and then there's a, a store manager. And the store manager, in essence, isn't necessarily more valuable than even one of the workers who isn't a manager. Because without the workers, the store manager wouldn't have a job. But yet without the uh, store manager, the workers wouldn't have a job either. So my point is nobody is more valuable. They have different roles. They have different roles that they play. Uh, the people who uh, work uh, in the store, uh, they aren't necessarily going to do all the managerial jobs and answer all the emails and have all the hiring decisions that the store manager does. But again, the store manager isn't down there necessarily every moment in the nitty-gritty trying to help customers and do things that need to be done there as well. So we all need to work together. And just as the marriage relationship, he says here that uh, the church is subject to Christ. And as the marriage relationship needs every single part of that family uh, to succeed, so does the church. The church needs every person within the family of God to succeed and do that which God desires for the church to do and to be. So he goes on to say here, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved 
the church. And again, that's a sacrificial, selfless love. And he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present to uh, her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that should he sh- uh, she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, uh, quoting back in uh, Genesis, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so that is his main emphasis here as he's talking to this church in Ephesus. He's saying, I want you to understand the relationship that Christ and the church are to have. It is supposed to be an intimate relationship. The marriage relationship is an intimate relationship. And the relationship between Christ and the church is to be one of intimacy, one of knowing him and him knowing you in a very intimate way. Now, if we're honest, God already knows us in a very intimate way. He knows everything about us. He knows the, the very number of hairs on our head, the Bible tells us. And he knows uh, who we are inside and out. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes that can be, a, I don't want to say a scary thing, but can be a, when, when we aren't living up to uh, being a child of God. And sometimes we make mistakes, as we all do. We, we sin still. Sometimes we can, as a child, sometimes from a parent, will want to not look him in the eye and, you know, want to turn around because they know they're getting in trouble, because they know they did something that they shouldn't have, as we're going to talk about here in just a minute about children obeying their parents. You know, sometimes we can, if we're not having that close relationship with Christ, we can sometimes want to draw away from him because we know we've disappointed him. Just as children sometimes know they disappointed their parents. And so we're going to have that, that time sometimes, but it's an intimate relationship that he knows us and we ought to know him. This Christ and the church relationship that he's talking about. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects, that she honors her husband. And I said last week, but just as a transition into our uh, chapter 6, verse 1. One of the greatest things that men look for from their wife is respect. Is knowing that she respects him. There's not always have I made the right decision in our family, I'm sure. But yet, even in knowing that there's probably times where I've made the wrong decision for our family... I do know that my wife respected me and our family. That goes a long way. You'll gain more love from your husband. It shouldn't be contingent on this because the love that Christ has for us is not contingent on how we live. It's unconditional and it's sacrificial. It's not based on conditions of how we 
love him or how we like him or how we live for him or how we get to know him. It's not conditioned on that. He loves every single person in this world the same no matter what they do. I'm not saying he likes everything that we do. But he loves them no matter what. There's a difference there between love and like. You want your husband to love you the way that he should. He should do it anyway, but respect him. And I know it's hard sometimes because even in job situations are times where we may not agree with somebody who made a decision about something and yet we still need to respect their position, respect who they are as a person. And the more respect you give to your husbands, the more love you will eventually get in return. It may not be overnight. It may not be something that happens right away. You know, the Bible also talks about how wives should, uh, if they're living with somebody who is unsaved and they're not a Christian, uh, win them over with their, uh, their conversation or how they live, their manner of life. You know, And we're not going to get into all that today. Uh, some other time we will have to dive into some of those things. But my point here is the more respect you give, the more love eventually you will get in return from your husband, that unconditional love. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament here. Uh, honor your father and mother. Exodus and Deuteronomy both talk about this. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. What is that, command? What is that promise? Uh, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Uh, there's many illustrations we can go with this, and I'll, I'll get into a couple here in just a minute, but let's read the rest of this so we can get it in context. It says, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. That is a phrase that we ought to pick up on as we uh, will see that uh, all throughout the New Testament, that we, how, when he talks about how we're supposed to live, we are to do it as unto the Lord or as unto Christ. We ought to live our lives as if we're doing it for the sake of Jesus. He says here, uh, verse uh, 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that wherever or whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So we'll get into those last couple of verses uh, here at the end. But I want us to understand first and foremost with this child, uh, this uh, family relationship, the parent-child relationship. I want us to see this parent-child relationship, not just in the context of physical parent-child relationship, but also father, heavenly father, God, children relationship. We can understand a, a few things, whether you have children still or not, whether you are a child in the back. Hopefully they're listening a little bit. 
uh, are or not. He says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And there's uh, some who can uh, just go to these passages in Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6, where it says, uh, this is how you're supposed to live this way, and uh, this is uh, something good that you're supposed to do here. And children, obey your parents, and honor your father and mother. And we like to uh, uh, use those phrases and, and, and just use them. Honestly, somebody who, even a child, who simply obeys their parent, Let me put a caveat on this because I have a two-year-old back there, okay? So for me to explain to him sometimes why something is wrong, like don't touch that hot stove, he's not going to fully be able to grasp it right now. There's certain concepts he can understand. There's certain things that he can understand, but uh, hopefully not. Uh, but he may have to experience it. I, I don't want him to, but he may have to experience, unfortunately, if he doesn't listen and experience the hotness to understand, no doubt some of us probably had to learn a few things by experience, even though we were told uh, it probably wasn't beneficial for us. We can try to help him understand, but simply at this point we're saying, no, don't touch the hot stove. You just need to obey. I can't have this conversation with you to help you understand it because you're not able to grasp it yet, but I'm going to say you need to obey and this obey is different than the uh, talking about earlier in, in chapter 5 where he talks about the wives submit. It's not a willful submit, submission necessarily. This, this obeying is a, you probably don't always want to listen to this, but this is for your uh, benefit. So you simply need to obey. As the kids get older, we, 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 we tend to be able to explain more things to them and be able to help them understand why, in some instances, you ought to obey. Why should a, uh, one of our children not just run out onto the street? Because guess what? You're going to get hit by a car. And they can start to understand that a little bit more as they see the cars go by, as they see uh, maybe uh, accidents if they're in a car or on the street playing, or, or two children riding their bikes and they collide together. Uh, they, they see some of those things, and so they can start to, to gather, yes, if I run out into the uh, street, uh, I might get hit, and that's not going to be good. It's going to hurt. And so then you can, start to, uh, you can start to explain a few things to them. You can start to help them understand. But he's saying here simply, children, obey your parents and the Lord. Why? For this is right. This is right in the eyes of God. Why? Because he also tells us as children of God to obey our Father. To obey him. To do that which is right in his eyes as adults. You know, adults are often just children in big bodies. You know, we still like to get our own way. We still like to have things go our way. We still don't like, in general, people to tell us what to do. You know? And yet, just as God wants us to obey as adults, to his word, to his spirit, to him, he also wants his children to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. He also then goes on to say in verse 2, he says, honor your father and mo mother. Honoring is different than obeying. And generally, the older you get, the less you need to obey in a, I'm commanding you to do something, I'm asking you to do something. They're going to start to get to this place, especially when they're like 18 and older, where they start to honor their father and mother because they're no longer under the 
uh, the leadership of their parents at that point. He's saying, honor your father and mother. Love and respect and give honor to your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Why? That it may be well with you and that you may have long life on the earth. Ultimately, you're going to live a life longer if you honor your father and your mother. You know, there's some competing ideas of what exactly this long life is. You know, it could be that if you simply listen and honor your father and mother, uh, they're going to keep you from some dangers that uh, might end your life sooner. For example, going out and getting hit by a car. If you honor and your father and mother, it could be also that the Lord is just going to give you a little bit extra uh, grace and mercy because you're doing what he said you should do and allow you to live longer. Either way, this commandment is that we are to honor our father and mother. So even as we get to be adults, we don't necessarily, again, have to obey them because we are outside of their uh, governance at that point. Uh, but we should still honor and respect and love and cherish our parents. If nothing else, they gave us life. They uh, allowed us to come into this world. I know not every uh, father-parent relationship was the best or is the best. And some, uh, some people in this world, they don't know who their biological parents are. But I don't think he's speaking just biologically here. If Whoever raised you, whoever brought you up from a child, you ought to honor them and respect them. And I think we see this often uh, more so in the good context with those who were brought up by good adoptive parents or good foster parents because they understand that they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to take them in. And they didn't have to give of their stuff and of their wealth and of their lives and of their time and of their love for that child. And yet they chose to. And we can often see a, a greater honoring of those, but how much more should we who had biological parents, who had parents that we lived with, who actually were our physical biological parents and honor them and respect them and love them. Not saying they're going to be perfect. No parent is. Not saying that you, if you parent or uh, how you live your life, you're not going to do maybe a little bit differently than they did because everybody thinks they have the way to do it and not every parent parents well. I know there's mistakes that my wife and I have made. There's also things that we tried to do that maybe our parents did that we thought, well, I don't know if that's the best way of doing it, but they did it that way uh, for a reason, and we're going to do it our way for a reason. There's some things that we did take from them and that we used in our parenting. This relationship that we need to have with our parents, it needs to be one of respect and one of honoring. Verse 4, he says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training of the, and the admonition of the Lord. Why does he say fathers here? Well, I was thinking about this week. And fathers here, I believe, uh, you could disagree with me and it's fine. It's, I don't think it's a, a point of big contention. But is the fathers are the head of the household. And ultimately he uses uh, the fathers as a point of reference. I don't think he's speaking just to the fathers. Although fathers, I think, have a greater tendency to not be as nurturing to not be as patient with your children. And I will raise my hand. There are times where I come home from work and maybe I'm not as patient with my children as I should be. 
And it's like, well, just go to your room because I don't want to you know, deal with it right now. You know, we get into those things. I think that's why he's talking about fathers here specifically and using that word, uh, but he is using the word fathers. And so this parental uh, fathership and you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't speak to them in a way that will cause them uh, to uh, not just be angry and sin not type of thing where we talked about earlier in Ephesians where he says uh, be provoked to anger and sin not, but this uh, point of being angry and sinning is really what this wrath is kind of getting across. Uh, don't provoke your children to wrath that they would get angry and that they would sin, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. I think mothers generally are more in ad- ad- adept to training and bringing them up in uh, the, the, the nurture of, of motherliness that they have. He says that we need to bring them up in the training. And this is one aspect I think that we need to understand is that God wants us to train our children. He wants us to take the time. Just as God takes the time to train us in his ways, God is a personal God. God works in the affairs of every single person personally. We can see that all throughout the scripture that he deals with people personally. It's a personal decision to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's a personal decision to uh, say that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior for my sin. And that Jesus died for my sin personally. That if I was the only person on this earth, Jesus still would have went to the cross uh, to die on that cross for the sins that I would have committed. If you were the only person, uh, God would have still died for you because he did. It's our choice whether we accept it or not. You know, sometimes we can uh, quote John 3.16 or see it quoted and it'll say, for God so loved the world. And we'll say, yes, God loves the world. But guess what? You're part of that world. There's a, there's a song that when Jesus was on the cross, I was on his mind. What, is, what, is, what, what do we mean by that? Well, it means that his, my sin was the sin that he paid for. And so was yours. And so was everybody else in the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only son, begotten son, that he should uh, die for us, that we would not perish, but have everlasting life. Make it personal. Because God wants to work in your life personally. God wants to answer your prayer requests personally. God wants to understand who you are and you understand who he is personally, that intimate relationship that we talked about. That we would bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Training is going to take personal time. Training is going to take one-on-one time. It's also going to take group time. You can't always have one-on-one time with every single person, every single minute, obviously. Because we're not God, we can't be everywhere at once. But it's going to take personal time. It's going to take an investment. Again, that, that's why he likens the relationship that we have family, familial, to the church-Christ relationship. Because it's going to take time. It's going to take an investment, and God is investing in your life. 
through the scriptures, through his spirit, through the church, so that you can grow to be, as he, as he says, a mature Christian. He wants to, he, he is investing time in your life, whether you want it or not. We need to invest our time and our training into the lives of those who are part of our family. It's going to take effort to have a good family. It's going to take effort to have a good relationship. I don't want this to come across in the wrong way, but it's true. Any marriage relationship takes effort. If you want it to be a good relationship, any relationship in this world takes effort. It doesn't just happen by willing it into the universe or, or hoping that it's going to happen or, you know, I'm a part of this relationship by being here and having this license, so it's going to take care of itself. No, it takes effort. It takes getting to know each other. It takes talking. It takes listening. Again, husbands, I know that's one of my poor suits is listening. You know, I try to watch the ball game and listen to, to my wife. That doesn't work. But yet somehow wives and ladies can you know, listen to something and hear a child say something and still know what you're talking about when you're talking to her. I don't know how they do it, but it takes effort, okay? He goes on to say here, and fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Secondly, so we can finish this morning in just a minute, master-servant relationship. Let's see the master-servant relationship. He says in verse 5, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh. And so he is making a distinction here that God is our master. He is the one who, uh, is out, who we serve. But he's saying here, according to the flesh. So the people that are uh, your masters here in this physical world, in that context, it would have been who was the head of the household or the overseer of the household. And they would have had these servants and he's saying, be, uh, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, with more of a respect and a reverence and an understanding uh, that they are your master and sincerity of heart. Do it with a heart that is sincere, with a heart that is all in it. Uh, he, he's saying, do it with a heart as to Christ. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it unto God. Do it as unto the Lord. Do it as unto if you were doing it for Jesus himself. He even said to his disciples uh, that you will give some to drink who are thirsty. You will give some to eat who are hungry. Uh, you've uh, helped the sick. And they're like, and he says, as you do it unto them, you've done it unto me. And he's saying, they're saying, how did we do it unto you? This concept here, uh, if you do these things unto Christ, you're doing it for him, you're doing it unto him, you're doing it with him in mind, you're living in a way as your identity is in Jesus. He's saying, sincerity of heart as to Christ, verse 6, not with eye service, not just doing it to uh, get the accolades, not just doing it to get the, uh, the, the applause of, of, on, on this earth, not just eye service, not just doing it uh, when people can see you. But that's why he says the sincerity of heart, the inner man. You know, there's uh, a joke that goes around about how uh, there's a, a child who 
a parent was trying to get to do something, and they're and all crossing their arms, and they're not wanting to do it. And finally, they're like, I'm going to do it on the outside, but I'm still sitting down on the inside. I'm still not doing what you asked me to do on the inside. That's not the idea that God is trying to convey here. He's trying to convey the opposite, that when we obey, we ought to obey with a grateful heart. We ought to obey not with just eye service, not just doing it on the outside. You know, there's times where I can see uh, my kids, they're just doing it on the outside. They're doing what we said, but they're in, on the inside. They're like, I'm not doing it. They're, they're not happy about it. And we still have to deal with that to help them understand that we are to obey and do what we are supposed to do with a grateful heart. He says here, not with eye service as men pleasers, not just trying to please men by doing it on the outside, but as bond servants of Christ, understanding that we are first servants of Jesus. Just as he said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you. The mind that is in Jesus, which was also in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He did not find it to be robbing God to say that he was God. And yet, how did he act? How did he live his life? He says in verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, uh, didn't uh, put himself in a kingly position. He came in a manger. A trough for an animal is where he was born and where he was placed. He wasn't placed in a great palace. He came of no reputation. He didn't come with the greatest of names. He was the son of a carpenter. Ultimately, he was born of God and of Mary without getting into all that. We'll talk about that as we get uh, closer to the Christmas season. But his earthly father who raised him was a carpenter. Low status. He came of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself. He didn't get filled with pride, but he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He became obedient. As we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to the Father three times, and he goes back and forth in that conversation with uh, the disciples. Can you not wa uh, watch and pray with me for one hour? Can you not uh, watch and pray with me as they keep falling asleep, as it's late in the Late in the night, they had a busy day, and their flesh is starting to fall asleep. And Jesus is praying, and he's praying to the Father, and he says, Thy will be done. Ultimately, he's saying, if this cup could pass through me, uh, if we could do it another way, if we could uh, do some other sort of thing here to make this still work, that would be great. But if not, thy will be done. He will take that bitter cup and go to the cross and die for the sins of the world by shedding his blood. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, which remind you that that was not a very pleasant death. I'm not going to go into it all today, but that was a death that was made to make a point to the people that saw it. It was excruciating for those who had to go through it. And he humbled himself to that point, the death of the cross. Therefore, God also hath highly exalted him. And there is a, uh, we're not going to get into it too much today, but there is a, a, a precedent that if you humble yourself, 
if you submit yourself unto the mighty hand of God and, and you live not in a prideful way, but in a uh, place of humility, that in due time, God will exalt you to where he wants you to be. Not saying you're going to be the president or not saying you're going to be in charge of this great company or whatever, uh, but he will exalt you to give you influence over others at some point, in some way, in some capacity. It seems uh, counterintuitive to the way our, our life is today in our society, but if we humble ourselves, we are doing the will of God, he will then exalt you in due time. Verse 7 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Whatever we do, do it unto the Lord, not unto men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. Whether he is a slave or free, it doesn't matter who you are. You are a servant of God as a Christian. And as we do it, not with eye service, but as we do it unto the Lord, you're, you will get rewarded for it. And you, verse 9, masters, do the same. So what does he say about servants? Servants, obey, respect, and do it from the heart. Do it out of a, a respect, at the very least, of the, uh, the, uh, the position that your master has, but also do it from the heart as to the Lord. What does he say, masters? doesn't leave you out. Masters, do likewise. Do the same. Because if nothing else, you have a master in heaven who is over you as well. And you masters do the same things to them. It's a reciprocal thing. Giving up threatenings. Don't just, uh, kind of in the same context with uh, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Uh, don't just do these threatenings. Uh, don't just threaten them with things, with uh, whippings or whatever the case may be at this particular time, but do to them as you would want them to do to you, knowing that your own master also in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. For this relationship to work between Christ and the church, we need to understand that God values every part of the body. God values every single person. Our parent-child relationship, we ought to value them as parents. We ought to value them as individual people, knowing they have individual personalities, knowing they have individual desires, knowing that they are not just a cookie cutter like every other child out there. I say that because we need to give them individual attention in training them in making the effort to bring them up in the admonition and the nurture and the training of the Lord. We are to teach them. You know, the first place that our children should be taught is not the schools or the church. But it's at home. The primary form of training that our children were supposed to get is from their parents. And so as the church exists to uh, help aid in parents, partially to train their children in the admonition of the Lord, it is not the primary job of the church to do so. And so as we strive to bring in other children and try to reach them and try to help them and to grow in 
to, to, to do what we can to aid in the parents' teaching. I encourage you, even if you're a grandmother or a grandfather, then you're not the parent. So remember that as well. There's a balance there, and I'm not to that stage yet, obviously. But the Bible talks to, to that as well. And so you can encourage your children. You can give them advice if they ask for it. But you're not the parent. And so we've got to be careful in that aspect as well. We are to have an intimate relationship with God. And if we have an intimate relationship with God, I believe we can then have an intimate relationship with our family. And as we do that, if we're right here with us and God, then we can be right with our relationships here on earth. And as we do that, our family relationships will be better. They will produce fruit. And they will produce things that are good. But we need to make sure that we are investing time in our family relationships. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for what you've done for us. Father, I do thank you for this time that you've given us to help us understand this relationship uh, that we have with you, but also this relationship with our families. Lord, I pray that you would uh, guide and direct and, Lord, help us because we all fall short somewhere. And, Lord, I pray that you'd help me and, and my family to uh, do what we can to uh, sure up those areas where we fall short. And no doubt everybody else who may be listening to this, that they would be able to shore up the areas where they fall short as well. And Lord, that you would give us the individual uh, places uh, as we talk to you and as we read your word, that maybe we need, to, uh, we need to work a little bit better and do a little bit more in living out our identity in Jesus by maybe being more patient or maybe just a little bit more long-suffering and understanding that we need to train or teach and take that effort, that, that time, Maybe we need to respect our children. Maybe we don't respect them. Maybe we need to respect our employers uh, as we don't really have that master-servant relationship, Lord, today, but we do have an employee-employer relationship. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we try to live the life that you want us to live out in this world this week. Lord, that's really where all of what we've talked about today is put into practice. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the, the days that we're not gathered as the church are generally the harder days to live for you, and I pray that you'd help us. With all heads bowed, eyes closed, I just, have, I just have a quick question that I'd like to ask. If something were to happen to you today, God forbid, but if something were to happen to you today, we're not guaranteed the next moment. Do you know for sure that you'd be on your way to heaven? whether you're here in person or whether you're watching online, do you know for sure that you'd be on your way to heaven? That is the ultimate question that needs to be answered, is do I have a relationship with Jesus? Now, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but I do want you to think about that question because we would love to help you know for sure. The Bible says in 1 John that you can know you have eternal life. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to hope in the context of wish or trying to do your best to get there. God tells us how we can know for sure 
that we have a relationship with Jesus and that we can truly be a child of his. If that's something that you don't know, I'd love to talk with you about it. My wife would love to talk with you about it and would love to be able to help you know for sure that you have that home in heaven. Father, we thank you once again for this time. Pray that you give us a good rest of the week that you've given us and a good day today. Praise on Jesus' name. Amen.